right. I've recorded a lot of interviews. I was doing them all in person, but now I do a lot of Zoom. So I've got like several collected and I only do okay. two a month. So I'll let you know when it when it goes on. And I'm going to edit it some or whatever, but I'll make you look really good. I promise. Well, make me sound like, a, you know, like I really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Hi, Fox. How are you? Hi, Jimmy. I'm fine. How are you? Well, it's Saturday afternoon. Saturday the 11th. The 11th. I'm sitting here looking at my phone at stacybeam.com. Stacy Beam is someone who I went to high school with, though we really didn't know each other that well. But he's always been so fascinating to me. Ever since high school, he's just taken off. He's He's done everything from music to, to art. He's lived in different places. He lived in New York City for a while. He lives in Nashville now. He's made quite a name for himself. I invite everyone to visit stacybeam.com, S-T-A-C-Y-B-E-A-M. He is just a phenomenal artist. So I sat down with him a few weeks ago, the same day that I went to interview Tom Whitaker. I interviewed Stacy that same day over Zoom mm-hmm. in my mom's basement. So the sound is not as good as it always is. I've done some cleaning, but yes, it is what it is. Yeah. Well, we talked about his art and his music. During quarantine, he started playing live, Facebook live piano sessions, mostly with gospel music, that old timey gospel music. And it was just so wonderful. to. I would sit and just watch that live and see some people that I hadn't seen in years, their names would pop up in the feed. And we were all watching at the same time, this brilliant piano player that we all know, playing that music just like it was just just rushing through him, you know? Yeah. It was a beautiful experience. And he said it was a good experience for him too, because of that, that all these different people from different phases and times of his life would be watching live. And he also paints live. He's a brilliant painter. And he will set up his easel in his studio that, that they built there on on his property mm-hmm. where he lives. And he paints and lets people watch. And it's just fascinating. It's like this Zen experience. So I did also talk to him about what it's like to get in that mind space where you're painting mm-hmm. or even when you're playing music. But that was really interesting. I liked that part of the conversation. The the interview altogether, scrubbing back through, you did get a sense of his career as an artist and how he's managed to put together the platform he wants, and I appreciated that. I look at his website, and you know, every artist has, you know, statement of purpose or whatever, and he has written on his website, I love this, my purpose is to invite viewers to a contemplative prayer meditation to engage with my art as I discover and capture the beauty in our physical world. And it's interesting, I had not read that statement when I talked to him, but we did talk about getting into that state, that meditative state. Not so much in terms of when we're looking at art, though now I regret that I didn't talk about that. But I do miss that about going to a museum and just being able to sit in front of a painting and just contemplate it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever do that? I can't think of a one to particularly point out at the moment. I'm sorry. (laughs) It's all right. I wonder how much we miss in the way that we interact so much with our phones and with media now. 
things are so quick. And that's, I know it's a cliche, but it's true. We, we encounter images very quickly now. I will say probably the closest I have immediately at mind, and it speaks to that state of mind. I don't know if I necessarily go into the Zen so much as I will go down rabbit holes of reading things on articles and in my phone. So, yeah. and that's a very different state of mind. It is, mm -hmm. it is. And that's a contemplative state of mind as well. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of what we were talking about has to do with visuals and sensory data mm -hmm. and not so much intellectual activity. Not that those things are mutually exclusive, but certainly not the idea of shutting out your one part of your brain and letting another part that maybe doesn't get to exercise itself as much that part that just lets things in and then flows to your senses and you know how you experience music and art and anyway it was a wonderful conversation stacy was very generous to let me have some of his time he's very busy and he does all kinds of art i encourage everyone to go to stacybeam.com or you can check him out on instagram at stacybeamfineart and again, that's S-T-A-C-Y-B-E-A-M. He doesn't need me to promote him, but I just want to make sure that all my listeners know where to find him. Sure. And I hope that everyone enjoys this conversation with a wonderfully talented musician and painter and just a kind soul, Stacy Beam. And after you enjoy this amazing interview with Stacy Beam, we had a little extra time this week, so I hope you'll stay tuned for a bonus interview with Fox Williams about his creative process with his podcast, The Audio Parlor. So here's Stacy Beam. While I was in college, my friend Mona Whitaker, you, you, who knows, I forget everybody's name. Anyway, she's like, you should get a job at Dollywood. They have, you know, so I went and auditioned and got one of the country shows. And then I did a 50s show and a, a Christmas show. And the wonderful thing about that was that a lot of people were on a sort of a path where they would go Dollywood, Boca Raton, Florida, <laughs> uh, <laughs> to this place called Musicana Supper Club. And I did four months there. And then they would, a lot of them moved to New York City. So I did that. I know that you, you're a musician too. And I was looking, I was you know, stalking your Facebook past. So I'd be prepared for the interview. Did you put out several CDs? I did, you know, and I should have put them out probably to the, you know, whatever. I won't belittle my work. It was good oh. work. I'm proud of all the work yeah. that I've done. Probably, oh, five. So the first one being kind of more songs of faith. Then I did kind of a country one. And then a couple because I found this niche of playing the organ at horse shows. Yeah. I did several or show organ CDs. And because, you know, it's not easy for uh, little horse shows that are trying to put on a show to hire a live person every time. Sometimes they would use a couple of instrumental piano CDs. So, yeah. Weren't you in horse shows a lot when you were, am I dreaming that? <laughs> nope. I that? grew up. Yeah. My um, granddad owned a horse called Bentley's Ace that won a world championship down there. And it was really something that Horse shows were a place that I sort of found other people, found people from other parts of the world. And I encountered the person who became my mentor as an artist. Her name was Billy Nipper. She painted lots of horse portraits, portraits of the president's horse and other celebrities. And uh, 
then I gave the eulogy at her funeral about four years ago. Mm. Her family has really embraced me and sort of helped me to pick up where she left off with a lot of the horse portraiture and that kind of thing. Because I remember reading that you do showings at something called Nipper's Gallery. Am I wrong? Yeah, the Billy Nipper Gallery in Shelbyville. That was, um, it's the only permanent space there at the World Celebration in Shelbyville. And only artist permanent gallery there. And um, this was the first year since she passed that I didn't do it because it's not really safe because of COVID to be there. Kind of a small and to stay safe. I didn't, didn't really make it this year. For people who don't know you, and if they don't know you, that's a shame, because the, the thing that draw, has drawn me to you recently was when we started the lockdown. And first of all, I don't know, maybe you were doing this before, but those live paintings that you do where you're just, you've got the camera up and you're just painting. And at first, I think you were mostly just silent. I think some of them you talk, it's just fascinating. You're like the Facebook Live Bob Ross, you know? Were you doing those before lockdown, or is that something you started specifically because of that? I think I may have done a couple before, like, you know, the quarantining and all of that. But it did sort of take on a new life. I feel like people have really sort of leaned into any arts. And the fact that I'm apolitical, I mean, I don't ever say anything about politics or really religion or anything, except just kind of look at the look at the art and talk about that. It's a business decision to you know, not ostracize half the people, but it also is, let's find what we have in common. And yes, I have things that I'm going to stand up for and believe in for sure, but this may not be the platform that I want to do that. And um, I don't know. I mean, I've been the one on the outside enough that I don't want anybody ever to feel like they don't have a place within what I'm doing. But you do, you, I, I can tell that about you too. You, just like Dolly, you have a keen business sense, I can tell. And you, tr- you are so prolific in your painting. And you have, I love your abstract paintings. Those are my favorite. I love abstract. But I love those horse portraits that you do and the children. The, there's some impressionistic stuff you do. You're so multifaceted. But you weren't trained. I remember watching a video recently where you said you were not trained professionally. How did you get to this point as an artist? Well, we mentioned Billy earlier, Billy Nipper. She allowed me to kind of come every so often. In the sixth grade, we had career day in Miss Martin's class. And I went to visit her. It was out of state. My parents took me out of state to Tennessee, up here to Tennessee. That began a relationship that, you know, I would kind of go for a week at a time during the summer as a teenager. And so during high school, I had a very thriving business of painting uh, portraits of horses. And by the time college came around, I was burnt out. And that sort of had me kind of leaning toward music. But music and art, I've always bounced back and forth between. And I, I feel like one feeds the other. I never, I never encountered an art program that I felt like I wanted to be a part of. I don't know. That sounds awful. But I I had a very, I don't know, I was growing up in Alabama and and I felt like, oh, I know how to do that. I don't want to do that. But isn't it always the thing that is like always the thing that you feel like, oh, nobody's going to care about that. That's just what I do when I don't have anything else to do. There's a way of, you know, that being the thing that has the least nerves and pretense and all of that around it. But 
I watch YouTubes. <laughs> I look at other artists' work. When I go to look at another artist's work, I kind of get like this for some so close. And I think I think I just kind of learn by watching. I learn by I've always sold stuff. I think I started selling art as a really young kid and so those were connected early on and i feel like that kind of gave me a head a head start when it came to thinking about it logically about business like if i'm gonna paint this who's the person who's gonna be interested in you know sure. i have always sort of considered where's this gonna go is this you know a doctor in green hills or a college student or whatever right who are the people that i have access to that that this could actually work for well, you have your own studio, right? It's called, is it Stacy Beam Studios? Yeah, it's just here. Uh, Stacy Beam Fine Art in my backyard. We just built, I think it's about 800 square feet of space. My background is the Golden Gate Bridge for some reason, or you could see some of it. But <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it on Facebook and I love even some of the where you were building it and everything. So that's really cool. Well, Amanda's a designer. We also, we have, have friends that are architects that kind of came in with us and we're able to make a really beautiful space here and it inspires me and Lord, since COVID, it's been so good to kind of have a door to close and sort of be able to be out here and do my work. We also have open houses where this is a place where I'll kind of invite the neighborhood, invite people who are into my work to come and look. And that's been a good outlet for people to see the work. You just did a show. What was the show you did? Art on the Mountain? I was looking mm -hmm. at that online. How did that go for you? It was good. You know, we didn't, we didn't do a ton of advertising because there's usually a big craft fair up there that was canceled because of COVID, yeah. but we felt like we could be safe. It's a fairly big room, two big rooms that are part of a commercial building we own there in Bersheba Springs. And we've done about twice a year pop-up shows. So we do one at the 4th of July that benefits the Bersheba Springs Medical Clinic. That's a free medical clinic there. And then this one, you know, we didn't have a ton of traffic, but the people that did come bought things. So like every time I take stuff out the door, it's a good thing, whatever. I'm just kind of trying to keep things from dying. I think one thing I... I've struggled with just kind of personally, like I'm always wanting to work on the big deal, the most important, the one that gets all the attention, the one that gets everybody talking or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what I have to remember is, you know, the things that always get neglected for me are the everyday, just do your job, like putting away the dishes or, you know, that kind of work that just feels a little bit like the normal thing. And every Every show isn't going to be the big stop the presses kind of thing. And this felt a little like, yeah, this was a good one. Of all the art shows I've ever done, this was definitely one of them. <laughs> <laughs> In a typical year, like outside of COVID, are you doing, how many art shows would you do? Is it a lot? Oh, probably five to ten. Everyone is different. Mm -hmm. We've done the Tennessee Arts and Crafts Fair for a couple of years where we go uh, to Centennial. Yeah, mm -hmm. Centennial Park in Nashville. Those are fun. But the, the work I really enjoy the most is just comes from word of mouth. And like you mentioned, the people who are watching on Facebook and 
responding there. A lot of the response I get is just through Instagram and Facebook and people who have bought a piece of my work that have told a friend and just kind of getting it around that way. You mentioned your mentor. Do do you have any mentees? Are there people who are younger and look up to you and learn from you? You know, I probably need to do better about that. You know, I, I guess I do. There are a couple of ladies at my church that come up to me and tell me that they've watched what, what I've done and have tried to take what little advice I've given them and do something with it. I'm not as intentional about that as I probably ought to be. I don't feel like I'm a great teacher. But, you know, if I slowed down and really thought about it, I would probably start thinking. Of, well, I didn't um, mean to put you on the spot, Stacey, or anything, but I do think that you definitely inspire other people. You really, hope so. not just artists, but your music also. I can't even, for real, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart, one of the things I think within recent memory that touched me the most as a human being, where I felt connected to someone else who wasn't even in the room, was listening to you play piano during quarantine, those old gospel songs. And I felt not just connected to you and to God and to, you know, the world, but to those people who were also watching and listening, uh, people, uh, names would pop up from people that I'd forgotten about, you know, from high school or from ARAB or whatever. I really want to thank you for doing that. You did not have to do that. That you play like nobody's business. Uh, uh, so I appreciate that. Well, that, that fed me, you know, nobody enjoyed doing that more than I did. Yeah. yeah. And that little window that I had on Easter Sunday morning. I mean, I've been in church, you know, my rear end belongs on the piano bench or on the organ bench on Easter morning. And to, to not have that just felt like the weirdest thing in the world. And to just have that place where I could do what I'm supposed to do and people could respond. And like you, I mean, people from different times in my life, different places that I've lived, responded, and that really fed me in a way that nothing else does. Um, you know, the arts and music, I've always just been consumed with, with those, and I really appreciate you reflecting well, that you enjoyed it. I think art and music and all the humanities, they're so important. And I worry about artists and musicians and all the people in that area during this time because like people who are in bands, people who are singers, I just worry about them. So I hope that in any way that we can support people in that area, I think it's so important. Well, I've felt that. I really have. I've felt people kind of turning toward what I'm doing in a way that they weren't even before COVID. And then, of course, my wife is a very, very good realtor here in a really good market in Nashville. So that doesn't hurt anything. But we have so many friends who are in that boat. They're session singers. They, one of our very close friend tours as a sound engineer. And I mean, they've got nothing. Nothing is going on. And they're figuring out ways to make it work. If like one dude makes bagels in his kitchen and delivers them to the neighborhood. And he, yeah. there are so many different ways that people are just making it happen. But I feel like artists and like, I moved to New York City out of college, wanted to act and just do all whatever entertainment, arts related thing that I could. So we're used to sort of taking nothing and right. figuring a way of making something out of it. So I feel like 
in one sense, artists are sort of a little bit better equipped because we, we look at things in a little bit from a different angle. I mean, I've never had a day job. I know a lot of, you know, I teach, I teach English at a community college and what advice do you give to young people or anybody who wants to go into the arts, who wants to either paint or play music or be a, a singer or whatever? What, what would you tell them now? I mean, I know COVID changes things a little bit, but assuming that that will end sometime soon. Sure. I think this is a little bit the jaded side first, <laughs> but like if you can possibly do anything else, but if art is the thing that is like your heart and if music or whatever that is that drives you and kind of compels you get great at it get as good as you can possibly get and be have some humility and you know listen to criticism and you're not going to get better unless you the stuff that hurts land and kind of figure out what what little kernel of truth that you can learn from any kind of negative criticism. You know, I feel like the people that are still doing music and art when they're old are the ones that just never quit. My wife's uncle is an artist and he's an, oh, he's an older man and has been a gainfully employed visual artist his entire career. And I got to sit with him on Sunday and listen to him talk. And he's one of the funniest people I've ever seen. You have humor, you know, find, learn how to make fun of yourself because, I don't know, hang in there, keep doing what you're doing. And Do you think that there's some personality traits that some people have that make them more likely? Do you feel that you, for instance, had something inside you or that you were born with something or, because you're a, you're a go-getter, you're a doer, not just a, you're not just a dreamer, you're not just sitting around, you are doing things, you have a business, you know? Is that something that you had to learn or was it really just this drive that you had? I think in order to get really, really good at anything, you've got to have something that drives you. And I think, you know, my inability to throw a football, let's say. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> I would, there, there were probably some unhealthy drivers to say, you know, well, if I can't do that, I'm just about to show you what I can do. And I'm going to do it so good that, you know, fill in the blank. Yeah. But I think maybe just kind of using some of that, the way that kids are so cruel and you know a little artist and growing up in arab alabama it's not the easiest thing and i think probably i had a little something to prove i i like to i like to see something finished i think my my granddad and my dad both kind of they would lecture and talk to me a lot about a work ethic sort of thing that's finish what you start and they like drilled that into me a lot it's hard to have a real clear perspective on yourself and why you do what you do. But. It's unfair of me to ask. I'm sorry. <laughs> what about your kids? Are they anything like you? Are they going to, do they like music and art? And I have the one little girl. I said I had two kids in there doing virtual school. It's my daughter and her you have friend. one daughter. That's right. Bentley. Oh my goodness. She, she's all of the above. She's, <laughs> I mean, she's nine years old and everybody's an artist when they're a kid. And of course I think she's, brilliant and the most talented little girl that ever was at the moment like every now and then i'll uh, she'll lean into playing the piano and she'll you know be over there a lot and then just about the time i think oh she's gonna do this she'll totally lose interest and it'll be something else it's hard to tell i feel like she's if she wants to to have a career in the arts she's definitely got 
talent, but one bit of just realism and living in Nashville, that's such an arts town. I think talent is very small, important, but a very small piece of a big pie. And there are people, you know, holding up cardboard signs on the side of the road with more talent than me. I don't want to diminish the thing that is natural and innate in me that wants to to do art and finish things and make beautiful things. But uh, it's a small part of just kind of positioning yourself in life in a way, getting in the way of the people who help you up because in arts, we're, we're always beholden to the people who will fund the arts. I mean, all the way back to great masters that had to, you know, they would work for the church or work sure. for, for the people with the money. Right, <laughs> yeah. knows it ain't us. <laughs> exactly. Or at least for a while. Yeah. You know, I mentioned earlier you said how artists see things in a different way and that can help prepare them for a time like this. I think I've been reflecting a lot during quarantine about life and I'm sure a bunch of people have and my priorities and perspective have changed a little bit. And one of the things that I think a lot about now is how unimportant not unimportant, but the drive to have a career and to be successful, it is important, but sometimes it can be all consuming. And I wonder if that doesn't happen the same way for people who go into the arts. Like, do you feel that your life has been this purposeful progression towards this climactic great moment or does it meander? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, how is your life? Have you met, have you encountered these major obstacles or times where you're really down? I just wonder. Tuesdays. (laughs) (laughs) Tuesdays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, who knows? Like Jimmy, I don't know if you've heard of the Enneagram, but the Enneagram is yes. kind of like, oh, I love the Enneagram. It's been one of the most helpful tools just for self-knowledge. And, you know, I'm a four on the Enneagram, which is kind of typical of artists. You don't have to be an artist or have to be a four to be an artist, but a lot of people in the arts are fours on the Enneagram. And the sort of thing they say about fours is we feel all the emotions that the other numbers feel in a month. We've got that like before lunch. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So our emotions and like working up to a big thing, like those all feel huge. I think that's part of why we have to do the arts because we have so much there's so much, or for me, there's so many emotions, so much to say that it feels like, okay, I'm feeling this in a way that y'all aren't. And I, I have to, this has to come out somewhere, somehow. Yeah. Um, probably meandered off of the topic of well, the question. Well, I, I was a meandering question. But when, <laughs> so when you're painting, what does it feel like when you're painting? I mean, is it, a, can you even explain it? That's an interesting thing to try to <laughs> unpack. I will start out with maybe a little bit of a direction like i'll know i I want a lot of orange in this or i I know i want this to be a moody landscape but then there is kind of a place now it takes a while to get into that sort of flow but where time sort of disappears and i will have been in here and it's you know dinner time and i won't even know that I've been in here, it'll feel like I just started. But I do kind of sort of, I'm not fully thinking, you know, I want to put some anger right here. (laughs) You know, it's it's more just sort of kind of entering into that process. And I've done it so much and for so long 
I do feel like I can sort of let the process inform what the thing becomes. Sometimes it's harder than others, but it is a place like if that's all I had to do, it'd be the easiest thing in the world. That's the easiest part. All the other stuff is what's hard. Like getting returning emails, calling people back. I know. (laughs) Thank goodness I have people like my wife and there's a friend that works for and Cindy who can kind of pick up the slack a little bit when I'm missing. But I just, all I want to do is sit here and create art. That's it. That music. Yeah. When you're playing, does, is it, do you have similar, gosh, God knows you can, you can play the piano. I mean, you know, it reminds me of, I went, I love Iris DeMint. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but, and I went to see Iris DeMint in concert at, in Birmingham one time. And when she sits down on that piano, it's like old church time. It doesn't matter what she's playing. I'm not a musician, so I don't know what to call it. But whatever it is, how you go all over the keyboard, and it's just amazing. Where are you? Is it the same kind of mind space as painting or is it different? I think there are definitely parallels. Yeah. It feels like I'm flying when, it, when it's good. And when it's bad, it feels like I'm dying a nasty, <laughs> messy death. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you're in front of people doing it, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's, you've got to mess up. You've got to do the wrong thing. You got to just kind of bump around and learn what not to do. But it, it very much feels like a similar thing. It feels like stepping into a flow where you're listening more than you are acting. Yeah. I can kind of like hear where I want to go before I go there. And it, and it becomes kind of a dance that is uh, you're fully engaged. You know, that I find that. I, I've struggled with anxiety a lot in my life and been to therapy and all that. Right? And one of the things I learned from my therapist, one time I was obsessing with gain, about the fact that I was gaining weight. Uh, everywhere I went, I felt like everybody was looking at me and just horrible, you know, just constantly running that loop. And the only way I could get out of it, similar to what you're talking about, I had to train myself like when I was walking my dog is when it was the worst because I was afraid people were looking at me. I had to start listening, like emptying my mind and just listen to the wind or the air conditioning unit, or the car going, or the cricket, and get into like my senses and out of my brain. And that, to me, is almost, it's a similar kind of a zen kind of thing. The difference with you in art and stuff is there's also technique going on at the same time, but you know. No, but Jimmy's the same. I mean, I've done therapy and counseling my entire adult life. And I feel like everybody, if you don't have one, a counselor, you need to go right yeah. now and get one. I recommend <laughs> it too, yes. If you can, even if you can't afford it, there are places where you can find it, you know? Right. I mean, we all need help. And I've definitely, just similar thing, just to get out of your head and to in your body. I think one thing professionally that's happened recently that has helped in that in that sense is a uh, painting outside i recently was invited to paint at cheekwood the botanic gardens here in town and the whole thing was sort of around the artist coming and painting in plain air which is just means outside you're hauling all your stuff and you've got all the you know the elements maybe somebody come walking up trying to talk to you and the sprinklers coming on or whatever <laughs> you're just trying to move as quickly as you can because the light's changing. It forces you out of your head and to just like record accurately as quickly as possible. Yeah. But you know, 
man, the stuff about gaining weight, I mean, I'm the most vain human being that oh, ever walks. <laughs> I, I waste so much time thinking about, you know, what's sagging and poofing and all of that shit. But I mean, if we could only be nice to ourselves and just kind of be the friend to yourself that you oh. would be to, you know, you sitting across from me, I'm like, oh, let that go. Let I know. That go. One, of my best, one of my best friends told me one time when I was being really hard on myself, she said, Will you just stop for a minute and imagine that would I say that to you in this moment? Would your would your best friend say to you what you're saying to yourself? I'm like, no. She's like, what would you say to me if I were walking around worried about being overweight or aging? And I'm like, okay, I got it. But you know, just you can't probably see it. But the other night, I tried some new anti-aging thing on, on my face and broke out. I can see it. I thought. I thought, who is this young child? Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, can you see those bumps all over my forehead? So <laughs> Because whatever chemicals in it or whatever it is, I was like, well, never mind. I'm just going to have to age. But I really appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. I so I really enjoyed talking to you. And I wish you well on everything that you're going to continue to do. Oh, thank you, Jamie. Well, I'm honored that you wanted to talk to me. And it's been a, a real joy. Welcome to the bonus interview. Hi, I'm the bonus, Fox. I'm here with Fox Williams. Stacy and I encountered quite a number of technical difficulties at the beginning of the interview in terms of or his service getting knocked out for a second. He was on his phone. I Anyway, so I didn't get a full 45 minutes like I normally do. So we thought we'd take this time to talk about what's developed with the audio parlor since we first talked about it at the beginning of the season. Exactly. And I just want to pick your brain a little bit about what your process is. You know, I thought about you a lot after I did the interview with Stacy because it's interesting what we determine art to be mm-hmm. and how that changes over time. Right. I think that your podcast is definitely an art form. I would argue so, yes. And maybe not so much this one because this is an interview podcast, but yours is original. You write it and produce it and take different elements and put them together to create something that has an emotional through line that has a almost it's a it has a theme. Yes, absolutely. How do you do that? How do you decide what you're going to do? Well, most of my exposure to the kinds of elements that I'm pulling from have come from what's called left tube with the more leftist side of video essays coming off of YouTube, H bomber guy, ContraPoints, philosophy tube, Lindsay Ellis. So I definitely take a lot of cues from them in the sense that they will take a subject that they're interested about, interested with, that they really want to get out into the cultural sphere, but they really do make it a personable story. It may not be personal directly like they're sharing something from their life, although that is something that happens, but they are telling a story within themselves. And a big thing that I've seen with at least my understanding of that criticism is that media critique can be an art form in and of itself because you are, in essence telling your version of the story that is there and you're trying you're trying to keep true to the elements that were present and you're trying to to explore for yourself why something worked or why something didn't but in the end you have to make a determination of what does this mean to you and tell that what do you think is the difference between critique and art in this case because i'm familiar with literary criticism as an english professor and someone who has a master's in English and has done all that and read, studied literary theory. 
what is the, do you think what H Bomber does, what Lindsay Ellis does, those video essays, I guess, mm-hmm. that those are artistic or are they cri- criticism or are they a combination of both? They're definitely a combination of both. They will often land on a sliding spectrum of such. The examples I can think to give, um, H Bomber guy has a video crit- critiquing a video game webcomic called Control Alt Delete, which a lot of people have argued lands more on the artistic side than the critiquing side because he does he pulls in a lot of different media properties to synthesize this idea of how communities approach art and how they approach the creators of that art but even then the scope gets a lot bigger and he's playing a lot more with the structure in order to get a feeling across that isn't necessarily grounded even in control alt delete so that's more on the art side on the other hand you have some of Lindsay Ellis's work, which, I mean, it's funny. She's making jokes all along the way, and her editor runs buck wild sometimes. But she is trying to make very salient points in some of her mo- most recent work about legal issues in fan fiction and legal issues in fiction control in the internet age. And Philosophy Tube in particular, he's very rooted in this is this field of philosophy we're talking about, or this is this person we're talking about. He's just making it horny. <laughs> so it's not, you wouldn't, you would characterize H. Bomber more as artistic than the other two. I would say that one work I brought up was more on the art side, but they are all, they are all along the spectrum. If, if we want to put it into sort of categorical bins, there's the, the there is the umbrella that is art. And there is the umbrella that is literary critique from an academic sense. And then you could even throw in the third umbrella of just YouTube in general, because YouTube has never been an academic place. (laughs) But at the same time, like, I think that work has worked to take a more critical eye and nudge it into the aesthetic of art and YouTube. So where does that put you in your mind? I think, for instance, that your podcast... Oh, The Audio Parlor. The Audio Parlor Mm -hmm. is definitely leaning into art and creativity, it doesn't feel like I'm being literary critiqued to death when I listen to your podcast, for instance. That's very fair, and that's something I'm still thinking on and and evolving upon, because I absolutely approach it with the tone of, I'm just some madman sitting in my squalid bedroom having these fantastical thoughts in my head and wanting to express them to the world. And it's very fulfilling and creative for me in that sense. But at the same time, I have gotten some feedback from some people who have been like, wow, that really spoke to me about this certain issue. And other people have gone back to me like, I didn't really understand it, but you have a nice voice and it entertained me for 30 minutes. And that doesn't necessarily sit as well with me. Yeah, and I understand people will have different reactions. I have to say the second one, which is my favorite that you did about that song. Uh, Don't Trust Me by 303. I love them all, by the way, but that uh-huh. was my favorite. It really touched me. Actually, the one, the the one, the one about um, indigo, indigo. So also the- really like was so touching that I couldn't listen to it twice. Like I had to turn it off. Right, and and you were there helping record a lot of it. Right. So that that really says something uh, for the people on the podcast after the premiere. I've had one episode released since the premiere in which I talked about indigo, this little known robot from. 2003 to 2005 DC comic book lore, who I have really appreciated over the years and I don't think has ever been given a fair shake by either the community or the creators. And so I wanted to explore her relatively compact history. I think 
it's important for people to know that, at least in my judgment, your work on those topics that you cover in your podcast transcends the topic that you're actually writing about and does have, I would argue, at least some universal appeal in areas of, there may be some things that are very insidery, I'm into comics kind of thing, Mm -hmm. but not, not as an entirety, not as a whole. I would say that my approach in the comic book stories that I've covered so far, I've been trying to go so niche as to completely bypass even the comic book nitpickers and just present something that can feel universal because you don't have to necessarily be connected into all these decades of continuity to understand the good stories that are there. I agree. I I really enjoy, and I don't think it's just because <laughs> you and I have a relationship. Mm-hmm. I thoroughly enjoy your podcast and look forward to it. Thank you. And there's so much creativity that goes into the writing process. It's mm-hmm. almost as though you're writing a short story. I've seen you work on these things and you do them in these mad bursts. <laughs> it would take me so long to accomplish what you accomplish because I'd be procrastinating to death, but you really do get it done. Well, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there in the sense that you see me write it in mad bursts, but I'm probably thinking about it a week, two weeks beforehand and putting down notes here and there. I have a list of ideas that at this point is over 20 bullets long, just trying to synthesize what I want to do with that particular thing, even if it just made me feel a particular way. Oh, poor dog. Here goes Dolly. She's going to be barking. If she barks, we're so sorry. Go ahead. But you brought up procrastination, and that is something I'm still working with. You want you wanted to get into the process. I am still narrowing down parts of what I want to incorporate into that process. Like Indigo, I thought about for the whole month leading up to its release, but I ended up writing it maybe five days beforehand, getting it recorded three days beforehand and editing it all more or less the night before. And I'm never going to do that again because I, I am so proud of the Indigo episode, but upon releasing it, I'm like, oh, there's technical things in there that I would adjust if I had more time. But I want, I set a deadline for myself and I wanted to get it out. And I'm running into that now with the episodes I want to put out next. Um, I'm going to continue talking about Triplicate Girl, but the next story I'm talking about, I want to weave a couple of interviews that I've found along the way, a little bit of research that I've done, and making sure that I'm pulling from primary texts in a way that I feel is most authentic and really not obscuring the point. It, there's been some procrastination just because I'm like, oh, I don't, I don't necessarily, this is new territory for me, so I haven't necessarily gotten that down yet. But yeah, uh, procrastination is a thing learning figuring out my process as a thing but you've seen the process as it's evolved so far and it's created some good works what do you want your audience to get out of your podcasts i definitely want them to be entertained this is definitely me having electricity shooting out of my ears this is definitely me wanting to have fun and share fun with others You know, and I think people who have heard me on this podcast know that I am a very deep thinker in several ways, so I do have some deeper pursuits in that that I've been discovering along the way. Mostly what I have found has dissatisfied me in some of the media I've covered, and the reasons why I've wanted to talk about it has been because there is a predominant presentation of that media and there's a predominant interpretation of that media that I don't necessarily agree with. And I worry that a lot of people out there take in media uncritically, whether it's the news or fiction. And 
I really just want to make that budge of just getting people to get excited about maybe there's another way to look at this. Maybe maybe this character is more than I gave her credit for. And there's absolutely a feminist and queer tint to that because I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe this character is more than we give her credit for. Maybe the process by which this was made that we can see is something to think about. Maybe there are biases built into how a thing was made that we can identify and work with or around or beside prepositions. <laughs> <laughs> just, yeah, I just, I, I, I want to encourage people to think as much as I do. Hey, before we wrap up our bonus interview, sure. Let me ask you a few things with short answers, okay? Okay. So, I love your artwork for the cover of your podcast. Mm-hmm. Who did that? Uh, I commissioned that off of a person that I know on Twitter. Twitter, if you have the right connections, you can find lots of artists willing to do commissions for whatever you need them to do. Her Twitter name, I believe, is is Anita Blake. And she's someone I follow on Twitter. So if you find me at Fox East 52, Fox the Jackal, you'll you'll find that she's on my follow list and, and we're mutuals. I'm going to get her to do my cover art for season three. Which I'm sure she'll appreciate. I'm going to commission her. Yes. The second thing I wanted to ask you is, do you have anything in the works that would be considered fiction? Have you ever thought about that? I have. I'm nowhere near that point in my own mental scape. I, and this leans into the politics that I think I've more or less obviously put forward in my appearances on this podcast so far. I am dissatisfied with the condition of the world, and I don't feel the need to put something new out into it so much as to change or put some effort into changing how we approach what's there, if that makes any sense. Sure. That feels more important to me right now. Okay, last question. What's your favorite color? No, I'm just kidding. Now, what is your favorite color? I I could be really silly and say indigo. Uh, Uh, (laughs) Like a red or a burgundy-ish is nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know what Dolly Parton's favorite color is? Uh, What's that? It's white. It's not really colors. She loves white. She loves to wear white. Sure. I just saw her do one of those Google sessions, you know, where they you Google somebody's name and the things that come up, the celebrity answers those, you know, like, why would Dolly Parton do or why does she? Anyway, the real last question I had for you was, if you could sum up what your next episode of the audio parlor is, how would you sum that up in like a few sentences? I mentioned the Triplicate Girl episode. I'm pushing that back because the research is what it is. The next episode I'm going to do is... An exposure to the best Drag Race season there ever was. Which is? Drag Race Thailand season two. Oh my. Yes. For people who might not be familiar, RuPaul, people have heard of RuPaul at this point, and they've maybe heard of her drag drag competition Drag Race at this point. She has franchised to several countries at this point. Thailand season two kicks them all out of the water easily. Even even, uh, the UK, the... the Yes. Really? Yes. No, the UK, there are some good personalities, but the Thailand has good personalities and good judges and good general morals that they get across in their storylines and fantastic, fantastic work by the girls in terms of their looks and their costumes. Their looks are amazing. Yes. 
Yeah, I don't want to drag anybody's drag. I don't want to drag anybody's drag. Oh, no. Canada wasn't my favorite, so I I was glad to see Thailand be so great. Canada had some structural problems, and that's a talk for another day. Yeah, so you're going to be tackling Drag Race Thailand, season two. I am going to be exhibiting some of my favorite moments from there and hopefully getting people interested enough to where they watch it themselves, because I won't be covering everything. I'll just be covering some really good moments that aren't even the best moments. Well, I'm really excited about that, and I think everybody should tune in. Mm -hmm. So this has been a great episode. I've talked to Stacey Beam. I've talked to Fox Williams. I'm inspired. I want to go do something creative, and instead I'll probably clean the house and listen to Reba McIntyre, because I just got, rumor has it, 40th the 40th anniversary of that? By all means, listen. <laughs> I haven't listened to it yet. It's on vinyl. I mean, I've listened to it a hundred times sure. in my life, but not this new vinyl copy that I have. Yeah. That's probably what I'll do today. And that's fine. You do you. All right. And you do what makes you feel good in this moment of the world being what it is, by all means. Look, Dolly's sitting in that chair, which means she wants to go for a walk. Then we must let her do so. Thank you very much for having me on as a little bonus segment. Thank you, Fox. And thanks to Stacey Beam, the talented, fantastic Stacey Beam. And that's another podcast. And I'll see everybody in two more weeks with a new guest. Bye. Where You Are was created by Jimmy Ellenberg and edited by Fox Williams. Our intro is Small Piano from the Ant Hill album by Patricia Taxon. All music was used with permission. The views expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution for which I have ever worked or will ever work. Thanks for listening. Have a nice day wherever you are.